0: Welcome back to Africa Investigates, a podcast that delves into some of the biggest financial investigations across the continent. This week we kick off the second part of a two-part series examining Australian mining practices across Africa. In the last episode of Africa Investigates, we began examining the findings of fatal extraction, the human cost of Australia's empire in Africa. A team of local journalists working with specialists at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists or ICIJ and the African Network of Centres for Investigative Reporting or ANSA exposed the misconduct of Australian mining companies across 13 African countries. The journalists discovered deaths linked to mining company practices, court cases brought against the companies by workers, farmers and village chiefs, and bribery of mining ministry officials. The release of Fatal Extraction's findings caused Australian politicians to call for reform and forced the mining companies to try to defend their actions to shareholders. In today's podcast, we will continue to explore how Fatal Extraction came together and then dive into the impact of Australian mining companies in Cote d'Ivoire. We're privileged to welcome Heinrich Boehmke, a cross-examination advisor at ANSI's Investigative Lab, and Sile Kowasi, the journalist who put together the case report for Cote d'Ivoire. First we'll speak with Heinrich Bumke about the importance of a legal editor in large-scale investigations. Heinrich's role at Answer and in the Fatal Extractions Project is to bring a prosecutorial perspective to investigative journalism. He combs through the language of the reports, evaluating the strength of the evidence and ensuring that the claims can stand up in a court of law. Unlike a traditional legal department, Heinrich's role at Ansa is closely tied to the editorial process. He works with journalists to build the strongest possible case against the companies they investigate. When you read a piece of investigative journalism for a project like Fatal Extractions, what particular substantive or linguistic issues are you looking for?
1: Um, So Chris, the first thing is we we look to make sure that for every big substantive claim that is being made there's sufficient evidence um in the article itself readers don't want to read um, strong claims without there being some reasons given for those claims so the first thing is to have a look and make sure that there's at least a suggested piece of evidence for uh, a strong allegation for all of the big allegations so if somebody says um, the villagers were driven off their land by a greedy mining company which happened we then want to have a look at whether or not that strong claim has some backup in the paragraphs that follow. So that's the first part. The second part is to make sure that once there are sufficient facts to back up the big claims that are made, are those facts persuasively arranged in the body of the article? Um, Far too often all we look at is whether or not there's a lot of facts that have been dumped into the article to back up the claim, And that's great, that has to be there. But are those things arranged in a manner that argues the case to a reader, persuades the reader of the essential uh, truth behind the allegations that are being made? Um, And so that's, you know, the linguistic side of things. Are people subtle enough? Are they indicating where corroboration for the claims is to be found, teasing out contradictions in the denial, all those sorts of things?
0: Can you give me an example, without identifying the specific story, of how prosecutorial editing was used for evidence.
1: Well, let's go back to the claim about villagers being driven off land. Um, uh, That's a claim that, at a certain level of common sense, comes up in many of the stories in the Fatal Extraction piece of work. But when one actually goes down and whittles down uh, what villagers are actually saying, in some of the cases, what what is being said is, look, these sharpshooters in big suits and big cars pitched up here, and they persuaded us to sell, and now or swap our land for another piece somewhere else and now six months down the line um you know things are not looking that good for us um and uh, we think we've been duped so in other words the strong claim made by the journalist which is almost about forceful expropriation isn't quite matched by the subsequent evidence that he cited now that could be a big problem from the point of view of legal action in in future but it also makes the story weaker because an intelligent reader will, will see, well, you know, the, the real issue here is one of being duped as opposed to a forceful being marched off the land. There's still a story. There's still a very important story and a, and a, and a story that needs to be told, but that story is a different one. So prosecutorial editing will first and foremost identify a factual insufficiency. And then In a lot of the the, the, the fatal extraction stories, um, obviously, as good journalists did, they all went to the target of the investigation for a comment. Um, But sometimes there wasn't sufficient interrogation of the answer that they got from the mining house or the government or the expert who said the river isn't full of cyanide, all is well. And with just a little bit of uh, deeper digging and comparing with open sources that one can find, um, you could actually deconstruct those, those answers and denials, which makes the initial allegation even stronger when the denial turns out to be um, a pack of lies.
0: What are the main differences between what you do with ANSA and the role of a media outlet's legal department?
1: Um, my understanding is that the legal department would primarily be there to ensure that they minimize the risks of a successful lawsuit. So they'll be going through a checklist, and making sure that um, allegations are um, fairly made. Um, and uh, to some extent, there's an overlap with what I do as far as that is concerned. Um, the difference is the legal department um, will not give advice on how to make the allegation that is sustainable, how to make that allegation more persuasive for a reader.
0: In many of the countries where members of the Fatal Extractions team conducted investigations, legal protections for the media may not be very strong or very stringently enforced. In that context, how can the services you provide help protect journalists from becoming the targets of the corporations that they're investigating?
1: Firstly, um, again, on factual sufficiency, once you've indicated, once once your allegations are true, that becomes a total defense to a lawsuit. So if you were dragged to court, you'd probably succeed. So part of my role is to make sure that those allegations are factual. But where a person is reporting an allegation that they're not completely sure of, um, it's in the public interest for it to be raised, but it might turn out to be false, the fact that that story has been written in a fair manner um, also assists uh, those journalists in in weathering the the legal storm that will come in the sense that if they can show that it was a public interest issue and they were fair and objective um, and they took all the necessary steps to unpack the allegation and give an opportunity for a reply, that will assist them in no end. But I think the biggest role um, that prosecutorial editing um, plays is to make sure that a story is crafted in such a persuasive manner that when um, uh, and if a big mining company with deep pockets were to take that journalist to court, um, the story of of that story being attacked by uh, this big mining corporation would... um, would be something that the mining corporation would not really want to uh, go out into the world. In other words, if big companies outside of news um, outlets like Le Monde or The Guardian were to pick up that this story written by this particular African, local African journalist, has now attracted all of the the ire of this Goliath, and that story is persuasively written and and, and is correct, um, it creates a kind of outrage and and, and a sense of protection among journalists and among progressive news outlets to rally behind that story and say, no, this was a good story, um, and and the journalist deserves um, protection. Um, If, of course, that story was recklessly written um, and a mining corporation sues, that same level of protection and people lining up behind the journalist is, is absent.
0: What is the overlap between the process of investigative journalism and the process of building a court case? How does your legal perspective strengthen a journalist's investigative report?
1: Um, We've spoken about getting your facts right uh, as being one part of um, prosecutorial editing. The other part is believability, persuasiveness. And um, there's a big, in my opinion, there's a big deficit um, in in many investigative reporters throughout the world in um, paying enough attention to arguing the allegation to their readers. And that doesn't mean taking sides, but once the facts lie, um, in favor of the allegation, one should um, arrange those facts and one should try to treat one's uh, readers almost as one would a jury, uh, making sure that the way in which one arranges the facts, the way in which one puts them out there, and the support for those facts that you provide in, the, in your story um, allows the, the, the readers to be persuaded. And I think that this, this whole idea of, of keep cocking an eye to believability, looking at whether readers will be persuaded by the final product um, is, is, is something that uh, really can strengthen an investigative report. Um, and, and we focus then on the on the things that you'll see in a courtroom when a jury or a judge is persuaded. Inside the story, one will be seeking out improbabilities. One will be seeking out inconsistencies, contradictions between people on the same side, um, bias, unreliability of observation or of the underlying science. All of those sort of things um, will be, you know, one can thread into a story to assist your reader in coming to a conclusion which um, accords with where the truth lies.
0: A main objective of Fatal Extractions is to expose the misconduct of Australian mining companies. Does your betting in the course of the editorial process prepare individuals or communities for the next steps after the journalist's work is done, steps such as initiating legal action against these companies?
1: Yes, should an activist or an NGO worker or perhaps even um, other consumers of this information um, wish to take action, the journalist's um, story has already been written um, with a sort of legal, legal proof hovering in the background. So it's just about then assembling those facts, taking them out of the story and inserting them into what might become an indictment, or um, if you were in the NGO world, it would be uh, sort of a hard-hitting expose, uh, lacking the narrative parts, but basically saying these are things that lawmakers, policy makers need to look at, um, allegation, evidence, and then analyzing why the evidence is correct and why the denial Lack substance. So, yes, definitely. Um, anybody who would read a, a story that has been properly edited with a prosecutorial mindset would find nuggets in there that could be used for further social action.
0: Next, we turn to the case of the Bonquero mine in Cote d'Ivoire. Another example where an Australian mining company's failure to improve living standards has led to disillusionment among local communities. Cote has experienced the gold mining boom since 2003 and the Ivorian government has presented the increase in economic activity as the path to development in the rural areas surrounding the mines. In the case of Newcrest Mining Limited, however, locals complain that the arrival of the Australian company has disrupted their lives without providing steady jobs or infrastructure development in return. Construction began on the Bonquero mine in 2007, and commercial production began in 2008. Before the mine began operations, the local economy was largely based on subsistence farming and cash crops. In order to begin construction of the mine, over 500 people from the Bonquero and Bandamancro villages were kicked off their land. Inadequate resettlement and compensation measures have left many of these families now impoverished. Newcrest claims to have followed the legal criteria for calculating the appropriate compensation for displaced residents, arguing that matching compensation with the full cost of relocation falls under the purview of the government, not the company. Locals also expected Newcrest to provide job opportunities and to contribute to community development programs. A recruitment process for local workers resulted in just 20 job offers for two or three week contracts. Newcrest claims to have spent $6.4 million on sustainable community development, such as healthcare facilities, schools, road maintenance, and youth programs. This amount is disputed though, and locals say the projects that have been implemented have a negligible impact on social and economic development. Even local residents who are not displaced geographically or professionally have felt the negative effects of the mining operations. When the mine opened, miners and job seekers flooded into the region. In the nearest city here, this influx of peoples overwhelmed the existing infrastructure, so residents experienced frequent power outages and a lack of running water. However, since this investigation was published, life in and around Bonkira mine has started to improve. Local leaders' compensation claims are finally beginning to move forward, and Newcrest is even admitting some degree of wrongdoing. Joining us now is Sile Kwasi, a multimedia reporter currently working for Abidjan Live News, who led the investigation into the Bonkira mine. Sile, how did you become involved in fatal extractions?
2: Well, uh, I was contacted by the ICIJ via the African Network of Centres of Investigative Reporting and, and When I was asked if I would like to join the Transnational Investigation Team to work on fatal extraction projects, I did not hesitate one second. Actually, my answer was yes. The thing is, I, I did some similar works two years ago, but at that time, my main focus was on the impact of the mining on food crops and food security in Ivory so the scope of my research was not huge, and I had very limited financial resources to carry on the investigation. And the research was aired on some local radio station two times or three times, I think, and it raised the debate over the impact of the mining operation. But the debate was short-lived, and unfortunately, the impact was small. Simply put, uh, I saw the invitation to embark on that investigative journey and join colleagues from across Africa and beyond as a golden opportunity to extend my investigation on mining operational recourse and to bring to light a story that is not getting the coverage it deserves.
0: What were some of the biggest challenges in collecting the evidence and data for this investigation?
2: Well, I have met several different difficulties while working on Australian mining operation agriculture, especially in the gold-rich area of Bonicro, Europe, with the southwestern region of the country. The first thing was how to get there, I mean, how to get there to to meet sources on time and respect the deadline at the same time. Uh, actually working as a team, we had strict deadline to meet, and the road to get to Bonicro was in a very bad state, and it was during the rainy season. No need to say things went from bad to worse. My car got stuck in the mud, and I had to spend additional days in and around Bonicro, and I failed to miss some of the deadline in the submission of my pre-reports. On the ground, things did not run smoothly as effective. Uh, indeed, getting south to talk was not easy at all. Most of the sources I contacted were reluctant to speak and share their stories on numerous activities in the area. Some were afraid of losing their jobs, uh, while others were afraid of pressure from the local elites and the company. Uh, collecting data in a freeway from the local government was another big challenge. Actually, local authorities administrators did not show any will to cooperate freely on the subject matter, even to get access to access documents that should be made the public. Some of these authorities were requesting from me a very formal process, and I was going nowhere.
0: What difficulties did you run into trying to reach Newcrest for comments on this investigation?
2: Uh, as I needed to build a very balanced investigative report, I had to turn to top officials of Newcrest, the money Company, places the dock, to hear their side of story. So my first attempt to get Nucrest direction for comments on the investigation were unsuccessful. No way to get an appointment with this official, neither in the headquarters, on the company in the coastal suburb of Kokobi, in Abidjan, the commercial hub of the country, nor on the Bonicro mining So as a last resort, I have to stick to email communication. There again, it was not a walk in the park to get nucleus for comment on the findings on the investigation. And finally, the company responded, but it was weeks after the initial agreed date, and the answer was, I mean, the answers were essentially allusion to blame to the government, to the Ivorian government only.
0: Newcrest often passed off blame to the Ivorian government in response to local residents complaining about compensation and zoning issues, claiming that the company had followed the correct legal procedures. How much are legal loopholes or inadequate legal protections for local residents to blame for the company's harmful policies?
2: Well, uh, in fact, whenever this question is raised, I mean, the question of compensation and zoning, Newcastle claims it operates legally, it operates under the mining law regime in every but it's in the same time very important for us to point the fact that the country still has weak institution and a poor regulation of the mining sector. And as the, it was only at the investigation of the civil society that some related issues are being examined by the government, including the mining law which is currently under review. Uh, so, put it, simply put, we still have, Coast still lacks lack strong mining regulation to hold the company like Negros accountable for the action on the ground.
0: What additional legal protections will need to be added to Ivorian law to prevent mining companies' abuse of local residents?
2: Uh, Ivorian authorities should emphasize the fact that the mining code should ensure local communities benefit from mining activities. Um, The code should require that mining companies to prepare and implement community development plan and to set up annual funds to contribute to the development of social economic activities. And I think the code should also clearly state the compensation rates the displaced communities should receive. This, I think, will be part of the solution.
0: What types of legal proceedings are local residents taking against Newcrest? And what are they seeking to gain?
2: Uh, well, several residents of Bonicro, the area where Newcrest is operating, uh, were evicted to make way for the gold mine, continuing their battle to have the compensation review, while others say they have yet to receive compensation for losing their loans and farm. Um, for what must be learned, a coalition of disgruntled traditional leaders initiated legal proceeding against the Quest. So the claim for compensation had been lodged with the Abidjan courts and they are asking for central de FIFA local friend, which is like the equivalent of 10 billion of US dollars, as a compensatory payment relating to the emergent interest. And pretrial hearings have begun, the case is pending before the courts in Abidjan.
0: What have been the government's and the mining companies' responses to local protests?
2: Okay, the government claims it is doing its utmost to secure the rights of population, and that it will never allow any economic operator to cheat population and trample on their rights. But local population still point the finger, the finger of blame at local prefecture and municipality authorities, uh, suspected of if the mine operators to ride roofs over their rights. Uh, as police forces are usually sent to open tear gas and demonstrators so, and to address some of this sometimes so and on um, the side nucleus maintained it provided compensation but on society compensation rates were formalized through um, administrative ordinance and are applied to calculate compensation among according to the requirement of the mining codes its application ordinance and other related regulation uh, what i mean is that the company also admits that it provides payment, but always emphasize it does not be the sole responsibility of, for the calculation of how much uh, must be paid. Um, the, in the email I got from the top official of Nucleus, it clearly states that they, say, they emphasize the fact that when acquisition process are and compensation payment are undertaken, undertaken in full compliance with national government regulation and guided by international convention and good practice, there again we must stress and emphasize the fact that I recall still lacks strong regulation in terms of, let's say, the administration of the mining sector.
0: Has the release of this report evoked any response from Newcrest or any other Australian mining companies operating in Cote d'Ivoire today?
2: Well, the release of the report has part of a considerable debate over the human cost of the mining activity in, 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 in the country, and particularly in the area of Bonico, where Newcrest is operating. And I was contacted by some NGO working, let's say, with populations in the mining area. But Nucleus has yet to make any additional comments. And also, other Australian money companies in the country are very, let's say, silent concerning the issue. They have not, we have, not, we have yet, I mean, to hear the voice over the issue.
0: Thank you to ICIJ, along with our two guests, Heinrich and Céle, for joining us today and shedding light on this complex investigation. This ANSWER podcast was funded by Open Society West Africa and co-produced by the World Policy Institute. Tune in next time for a critical examination of corrupt and weak political and healthcare systems that contributed to the Ebola crisis.